What does the social justice sector need to understand about the artistic process when they're creating culture change strategy? So what is the essence of this story? What is it that it wants to say? Who is the essence of this character? I wonder what role culture change strategy should play in the creative process of artists. Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Tracy Van Slyke. And I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans. Last time on Wonderland, we completed the first part of our season with Ai-jin Poo and Skylar Brown reminding us to explore the in-between space. This is how Skylar put it. We do have a lot of tools and techniques for just being with people as they're experiencing the space between I have a problem and I need the solution, and I don't know what that solution is yet. Yet. Remember, culture change strategy is a long-term, multi-layered strategic approach designed to create profound shifts in the way that people think and feel about the world. As we begin this second part of the season of Wonderland, we ask you to hold on to the insights we have gained from our guests so far. Starting with this episode, we will meet the artists, producers, and critics who are shaping the stories that create our culture. And today, Bridget will be one of those artists. She'll be talking about her work at the intersection of pop culture and social justice with a kindred spirit. Yeah, it's weird to take that hat off and put on another, but I'm excited. I'm excited to dig in. And Bridget, I think it's really important to talk about what it means to bring together strategy, being a strategist and being an artist, or what we mean by bringing together art and strategy. What are the implications? Are there tensions that come along with this? And what are the opportunities? Yeah, What's interesting is, you know, in the social justice sector, strategy is a really old hat term, you know, like it's what we do to talk about all sorts of things, even things that aren't strategic, right? But in the art world, strategy has developed a kind of, it's a kind of like a dirty word, it's a bad word, it's a very loaded word, uh, because there is the sense that creative process or the artist's way um, has to be protected from strategy, that it somehow denigrates the art, that it n- transforms it into propaganda. But that hasn't been my experience as an artist. And for our guest, particularly, you know, he's somebody who wholeheartedly, with full arms and and heart embraces strategy as a part of this process, which is, I think, why I we're both so excited to talk with him. So, Bridget, why don't you introduce the guest that will be joining you in conversation? So, joining us today is an artist I deeply admire. My name is Mahio Tusi. I'm a storyteller and a strategist. Maya Tusi has a rich background as a television producer and fiction writer, a documentary filmmaker. He is an immigrant. He is a strategist and many, many more things. He has lived and worked internationally and has a very interesting perspective on American pop culture. In 2006, he founded a media startup called Boom Gen Studios with best-selling author Reza Aslan. There is something for everyone in today's conversation. For those of us working in social change, this is an exciting glimpse into the creative process of successful artists. You may share more in common with them than you think. 
And for artists who are listening, ask yourself, how do Bridget and Mayad integrate strategic thinking into their work? How do they combine their art and passion for social change? And how do they bring their work to audiences? So let's get started. On the way here, you know, I, I took a car because I wanted to sort of write down some thoughts. And so I asked the question, like, when did I make a decision that I'm going to focus on um, doing right, if you would? Um, and, uh, and I couldn't remember uh, when the decision was made to do the right thing. But I do remember the first time I made a decision to do the wrong thing and how that felt. So I think I was I think eight years old, nine years old, and I was at my cousin's and my grandmother's house. And, and I remember in the backyard, we f- I found a praying mantis. And for some reason that I cannot recall, I decided to burn this thing with all my cousins there, you know, some of them horrified, uh, some of them like excited. And, and I remember as I just watched this praying mantis burn, it, it was devastating. Like I knew as it was happening, like I've just done something incredibly cruel and I have not forgotten that praying mantis since, you know, it's just un- unbelievable. Like I can see it burning in that fire. Like it's become part of me. So for me, being in this space of trying to do good in the world is more about not making the wrong decisions and, and sort of trusting my body and my, my consciousness to guide me to make the right ones. When you were describing that story, I, I felt in my, my gut like this terrible, terrible wrenching of like, oh, I know what that feels like to cause the death of like a living creature. Like, it, it's a horrible feeling. Yeah. Um, and so on some level, it's kind of, it's fascinating to think about making art for good because the alternative yes. is just such a horrible ex- feeling. Yes. Right? Like to get it wrong feels so bad. My The first, um, after many, many years of drama school and training, and I'm going to do all these brilliant, brilliant, amazing things myself as an actor, the first role that I got was um, a horrifically stereotypical role of a prostitute. And I use that term very intentionally. It is not the term I would use, yes. but um, I use it because it was full of every bit of stereotype that we attach to that word yes. on Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Who's the biggest? That fat Irish guy. What's his name? Come around all rabby ass, and you know you don't want to pay. O'Brien. Oh, girl, O'Brien went down. No. Yeah, in the Midtown South brothel scandal. Don't you read the papers, loca? Why are you always... Girls. I was so excited to get hired. And then I'm on that set, and as I'm sitting in the costume trailer, and it's like this person is becoming me with all the stuff, all the fishnets and this and that and everything, I had this deep feeling of such profound shame and embarrassment that I hadn't been more critical and alert to what was being asked of me in that moment. And it, it did, it's like turned the switch of like, so this is what it feels like to not only be deeply humiliated inside of your work, but to be putting really terrible ideas out into the world as an artist and like never again. Like it was a very, very clear moment. But yeah, it, it, it's a helpful 
memory to have in some ways, always informing your choices. You know, and I think a lot of the work that I do is in that space, in that how do you use stories and art to change the lens through which we look at the world um, rather than try to fight the negative forces that are in it. There's a lot of uh, energy that that takes to to try to change the way the forces in the world work. The easier thing to do as an artist, a storyteller, is to try to change the way people look at the world so that these negative forces then lose their power and potency. Um, I just want to dive into that a little bit what we're hearing a lot through a lot of our conversations has been this sort of common point of both pain, I would say, and will that drives both artists and social change makers. Sort of the pain point that maybe creates these transformational moments, but also the will to either create or will to create change. You mentioned, I think, the idea of the concept of desperate artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and just wanted to make sure we sort of dove into that and sort of what do you mean by desperate artists? Um, you know, when a person is cornered for whatever reason, you know, like for me, I was cornered as this outsider kid, you know, who, uh, had so much to give, but just there was inherently no value in anything I had to say, both out of school and inside of school, you know? So there was this desperate attempts I would make in very different ways and trying to get my voice heard and try to show my value. And so I felt cornered. But a lot of other people, you know, they're cornered for whatever reason, and they deploy a strategy through their work to get themselves out of that corner for very selfish reasons, for survival. And in doing so, save a lot of other people because other people then see how that happened. And, and, and I think it's really interesting to look at the desperate artist and how they save themselves and how those strategies could be deployed for other artists to find a connection between what's wrong inside of them and in that way, trying to impact the reflection of that in, in broader culture. It's so interesting. Um, what I'm hearing is that that an artist who has like a an overwhelming need to make something that remakes them, that, that need transmits. It's not even necessarily the art that they create, but that yes. their need transmits and pings in some kind of deeper need in an audience, sees that, recognizes that, wants to be near that, and is somehow activated or guided towards revelation as a result. I hadn't really thought about it that way before. And I I wonder if it's also, or what's the relationship between this kind of need, desperation, overwhelming desire and intention. I could see experiences that I've had as an artist where the opportunity to play a particular character, for instance, was about a a deep need for me to excavate something in myself, right? Like I spent... almost a decade playing uh, a character in in various productions and workshops around the world. Her name is Sarki Bartman, South African woman who was trafficked to Europe in the 19th century. Really extraordinary experience of exploitation. And I, I both felt like this character was haunting me when I was playing her, 
But at the same time, I think that as a mid-20s to early 30s kind of, of black woman in the world who had a certain kind of physicality and body and relationship to my own sexuality, that there was, there was something I needed to discover in playing this person who, whose body and sexuality was so overtly discussed and debated in the culture. Like, she didn't own it. She didn't own herself anymore. And for whatever reasons this character provided to me, it allowed me to sort of work out a lot of stuff in in my own sense of who I was and wanted to be as a black woman in the world and and inside of my own skin. You know, one of the things that's tricky about it for me is I don't know the extent to which I was conscious of all of those needs that I had when I took on this character. And there's often a lot of conversation, particularly in this space, in the culture change space of how do you protect the creative process of artists by not sullying it with strategic thinking? And I sometimes find myself really confused by the question because I do believe there's a lot of strategy, as you said, and intention inside of that. But when I'm thinking about this experience that I had with this character, I don't know the extent to which my process would have been different if somebody had said to me, do this role with these things in mind. Try to find these things, right? Because I probably would have rejected them, actually, and said, these don't resonate with me. I don't know what you're talking about, right? Um, because it was in, in the process of making that all of these things get touched and activated inside of... Yeah, it's the, just naturally occurring right. strategy. You know, I think that the key word is, you know, you said it didn't resonate with me, and I think resonance is the key word here. And uh-huh. I think what happens is that when that story did resonate with you, mm-hmm. then it has resonance with the audience. And so if you look at ourselves again like like instruments, once you start vibrating to that tune of that story, then they begin to vibrate. And so the question is, two things, which is interesting. I think uh, one is, had the story not resonated with you in that way, do you think it would have had the same kind of an impact? And how often do you see yourself going back to acting in order to find that that harmony within yourself? Like, do you find yourself falling off the wagon and then having to go back into that relationship for something to then resonate with you and say, to reconnect to that harmonious center so that you can go then go back in the world and try to create resonance out there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I definitely find myself returning to work as an actor oftentimes because I feel I, I have a profound and deep and often disturbing to other people crisis of identity <laughs> in my life. Like, I don't know who I am anymore. Yeah. Right. And and I I return to acting in a variety of ways in theater, sometimes in film, which is in some ways a more ironically more accessible way to be a performer. And through the process of developing a character and telling a story, I refine myself. Yeah. It's a terribly desperate place to be look in the mirror and not know who's there. Yeah. 
right? (laughs) (laughs) And then to actually sort of return into the art-making process with a desperate desire to recognize oneself or remember oneself. But I, I wonder about this question of, like, at what point in that process does this higher-level strategic decision-making make sense? Um, so I think maybe take a step back. So first of all, artists and storytellers are strategists, whether they admit it or recognize it or take responsibility for it. That's what I believe. I think if you're creating a work of expression and art, there's a strategy at work that's manipulating the, your audience. And there's nothing wrong with that. The whole idea, let's say, when you listen to a beautiful piece of music, you're being manipulated emotionally, psychologically, and it's a beautiful thing. You want it. You have to think, all right, you know, I'm working with this medium, and I'm going to do these things because it's going to create this kind of emotional response. And that's a strategy right there. Mm-hmm. But to to go back to this question of like how specifically do do you do this? It varies depending on who I am in the process. You know, if I am I'm entering into the process as one of the primary storytellers, as, a, as an artist developing a story and putting it out into the world, my process looks very different than if I am a, a strategy designer sitting down with a group of other artists to help them understand the story that needs to be told in the context, often in the context of movements, right? Yeah. But they are both, in my experience, pretty structured processes, right? So as an artist, it always begins with a great deal of my own learning and research. And often I'm ser- I'm searching for that moment that I want the audience to have, trying to understand what's the most valuable moment of revelation that an audience could have in relationship to this story. And it can take a long time of digging and digging and digging before you get to that. But once I get at that, then I start looking very like both creatively and like forensically looking at the script to try to understand what the choices are that I need to make in order for that story to add up to that moment. And in the context of working with movements and helping them define story, I think I also start with what do you need this story to do to this audience? And what audience is this? And then in in those ideal moments where you have the chance to like really understand the audience, you're trying to understand what's the barrier between them as they currently are and this revelation that you need them to have. And it's in the understanding of that barrier that the, the genesis of story happens. What about you, Maya? Can you take us through your creative process and help us understand where strategy actually fits in? Yeah, it's interesting. So from a story side, so what, I, what I've tried to do is I try to say, all right, so what is the story that we want to tell? And then I say, there's no such thing as money. There's no such thing as gravity. There's no such thing as God or morals. You know, I remove all obstacles. And then remove all those things and say, all right, so what is the essence of this story? What is it that it wants to say? Who is the essence of this character? And then so I discover that. And then I reintroduce the obstacles. Well, clearly there is money. <laughs> you know, clearly there is gravity. 
you know um and 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 then and then you adapt and then at the end of it if the thing that you've ended up with has uh, the, the essence is there then i proceed i find that i tend to naturally make the right decisions when i'm liberate myself from those things and you know this is something that i the gaudi did this you know the way sagrada familia was designed was because he thought there is no gravity how would i design a cathedral and so he figured out how to design cathedrals upside down and then he had to figure out well how how is it going to live right side up you know there's something really really powerful that is in every single one of us once you remove these interferences and i think we're far too obsessed with these obstacles and these pipelines than we should be in the design process stories specifically i think um two questions that i'm that are in my head right now one is there are a lot of artists who don't have that strategic process and so the question is like is it teachable is it possible to develop artists who make the choice that they want to have impact that creates more humane people for instance right like that is the impact that they want to have through their work how do we move to a place where that's normal and in its even a unexpected trait of artists of talented trained artists who have considerable craft right how do we move to that point cuz that would just dispel the question altogether of like where does strategy fit inside of art making if we just created a different expectation for what being an artist and making art looks like yeah i mean i think in the long term that's exactly what we have to do right uh, that's the only thing that's sustainable is that if you create an ecosystem in which artists can grow in that way resonance is key so who's doing the teaching and how is what it is that they have figured out relevant to the people that they teach perhaps we need to expand who the teachers are all right now listeners pay close attention here bridget is going to describe one way that organizers can work with artists to create powerful stories you know and i my arts training in drama school was all actors and directors and writers from throughout the american and international theater and um and so i learned in really deep ways um you know the art and craft of making theater but since i left school i have to say that some of my most influential teachers in the storytelling realm have have been people in movements right so a lot of the movement leaders that i've worked with um some of this strategic instinct that that absolutely has informed my work on stage came from movement leader so when i was doing this role sarki bartman the venus hottentot in this play all over the world one of my thought partners who i talked to deeply throughout the process was rachel lloyd who is an anti-human trafficking act- activist and leader um who who saw the her experience as a trafficking survivor and those of girls that she serves inside of this character's story and so everything from like how how do i handle this line and what's really going on between these two characters 
was informed by her analysis, right? And so she became an acting teacher in that moment. What was really educational for me was the strategic perspective that she brought to the kind of stories that one could tell, right? Like, she was able to say, look, I've been doing this work for 10 years. This is how people perceive people who have survived these things. If you keep repeating these tropes, this will get us nowhere. But what if this woman had this kind of agency in this moment? Or what if you could make an audience really understand how disorienting the moment is, for instance, when a trafficker says, hey, you know, we should run away together. Like, what if you could make people see that differently so that the blame gets moved from the choices of a girl, sometimes a teenage girl, to the actions and behaviors of a trafficker? And so I wonder if part of creating this like generation of artists who sort of intuitively and habitually see themselves on a trajectory of impact that is leading to a more just world is also about like mm, hiring Rachel to teach in an art studio, right? Or Ijin or any of these other people in the social justice sector who have a sensibility about what it takes to move a person towards a sense of their own power, a sense of their own complicity inside of unjust situations, a sense of what it takes to help people see their own bias and overcome it. Maybe we need to like mess it all up and create these learning spaces for students at universities and even younger that really complicate art making and art training. Bridget, I want to touch on your last point. You were saying that you think we need to reimagine how we train artists and support them to create from within social justice movements. And as Maya had said, story needs to come from an authentic place. But strategy needs to come from a real and personal place too. And when you actually combine those two and the art and strategy match up, it's magic. So, Maya, with this in mind, how do you go from writing a transformative show, having that script in hand, to then getting it out in the world? Um, it's, you know, it's tough. You know, it's tough. You have to go in there really sort of focused on why the story is something that they want to say. Like, you cannot go into a story meeting and say, hey, I have this strategy to change culture. Change the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I think, ultimately, people vast majority of people that are in the industry want to do the right thing. Um, and that, and, and that's why I'm not pessimistic. You know, I think the next step is how do you create efficiencies so that the right storytellers can meet the right executives and right people in the industry who are desperately looking to figure out and work with artists who are trying to do positive things in the world rather than going for the quick, easy answer that creates job security and, and gives them the perception of success. So I I have a question, though. Like, imagine. What would it take 
for you to be able to walk into a studio or a network and say, I have this story and I want to change culture with it. Let me tell you about that. Like, what are the circumstances that would need to change in order for a studio or network person to be open or interested in that approach? Well, I mean, I think that's, in fairness, that's the way you do it anyways. But you don't say, I want to change culture. So when you pitch, you go in there and you say, you know, why? Why do I want to tell the story? And you tell them a story personally about how you came to the story and why you want to tell the story and what is it about the world that you want to affect. That's the way we do it. And that's the way we found the most amount of success isn't in trying to hide it, but in coming at it from a very personal place. Personal. Right? So the reason why I'm here, I'm standing in this room, and why I should be telling the story is because this is the itch I have to scratch. And and then here is my characters, and here is mm-hmm. my story. And for these stories to survive, they just have to be really, really good. Good. Right? Um, so that's, that's the thing. But it has to be really, really good. Thank you, Mayad, for reminding us that first and foremost, an effective story needs to be a good story. It makes sense, right? Totally. We don't want to watch TV shows if the storytelling is bad, even if they have really important messages. But creating high-quality stories takes really hard work. And in our next episode, we're going to learn how it's done from two of the best. We'll have Diana Sun, writer and producer of the series 13 Reasons Why and American Crime. She'll sit down with best-selling author and anti-trafficking advocate Rachel Lloyd. Not only is Rachel an amazing activist and collaborator in my artistic process, but she's also an artist, producer, and writer herself. And like us, Rachel wants to know how we can bring social justice values into the writer's room. But she puts it a little differently. How do we, like, create messages that are thoughtful and compelling and don't support shitty behavior? These are two remarkable women who will help us explore what a real collaboration between social justice and entertainment could look like. On the next episode of Wonderland. Wonderland is made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Rigoberto Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City. Special thanks to Kevin Plesner and Rebecca Alex Meisner. Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. There are photos and videos of the conversation between Maya and me and links to the films and TV shows mentioned in this episode. 